Well, good evening. You survived day two. You're still here. As Anna said last night, that's a great success. You maybe thought it was going to get easier on day two. <laughs> Did the hard work on day one, and then day two was just plain sailing into bliss and light. Well, maybe for some of you it was. I know from a lot of you, hearing from a lot of you today, it wasn't. Maybe you resonate with this statement from one meditator who said on this on day one or day two, she said, I'd rather be at work. <laughs> or as somebody said in the group today, what the am I doing here? What am I still doing here? So although sometimes it may not seem seem like it when we're in the middle of struggle and confusion and knee pain and longing for something more pleasurable. These teachings, these practices are really good news. They are good news because they're a vehicle to uh, help us walk the path of liberation, freedom, of how to work with this turmoil and confusion and pain and wild mind and painful body and all the different things you may have encountered the last two days. Thich Nhat Hanh puts it this way. He says, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. The addendum to that is happiness is available and it takes some work and it takes some practice. The Buddha put it this way, he said, Luminous is this mind brightly shining, but it is obscured by attachments that visit it, visiting attachments that color the mind. So I really love that phrase because he speaks to an inherent purity and radiance and goodness in our nature. We all have, it said, Buddha nature, this capacity to be awake, to be compassionate and kind. And yet, as you have been seeing, we don't hang out there a lot. We don't hang out in that radiance and that bliss and that peaceful ease. And so tonight I'm going to speak to some of the ways that uh, come visit us, the, some, the, some of the things that obscure our capacity to rest at ease and at peace. And I'm going to use a teaching called the three poisons, the three habits, three very, three very deeply rooted tendencies of mind that cause us suffering, and you may recognize them. They're greed, attachment, hatred or aversion, and delusion, confusion. So our practice here is is both to recognize the truth of who we are, the truth of what is, and what gets in the way of our Buddha nature, of that truth. And every moment is a, is a moment to practice to see whether we're caught in some, in some uh, habit, some tendency of mind, or whether we can release that and be at ease, at peace. The poet Hafiz puts it this way, I'm going to paraphrase the poem. It goes something like, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a living nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. <laughs> But you also have all the ingredients to turn your, turn your life into a pure joy. 
mix those, mix them. So that's what we're learning to do here, to see what ingredients turn our life into a living nightmare and what ingredients we naturally can call on to, to support us. And I always like to take refuge, especially if I'm in the beginning of a retreat and it's a struggle and difficult, which it often can be, to remember that this path has been walked, as Harry mentioned the first night, by millions of people all over the world for thousands of years. It's been tried and tested and it works. Otherwise it would have died out, you know, several hundred years BC. But it didn't. It's alive and thriving because the practice really has relevance. It has vitality and as you now know, it's being researched by all kinds of um, neuroscientists and whatnot to actually proving the validity and the power of mindfulness, the power of presence. And the good news is we already have the most important uh, aspect or quality for this journey that you're undertaking, which is the quality of presence, the quality of mindfulness. We have this innate capacity to be aware as Anna was talking about yesterday. And it's this quality of mindfulness that really helps us discern uh, what's happening and also helps us discern what quality or what attitude or tendency of mind may be present that's causing us to suffer, that's causing us to not see clearly. As the great Yogi Berra said in the Sutta, you can observe a lot just by watching. So that's what we're doing. So as you've encountered on the first two days of the retreat, um, we often come kind of like a train wreck into the Buddha's teaching on the first noble truth, the first noble truth that there is suffering. Has anybody not realized that truth in these last two days, (laughs) that there is pain and unsatisfactoriness in life? Welcome to the human race. Many of you become... Uh, PhDs in this program. And so we, we come to understand what it is that causes suffering. Why is it that we, here we are in this beautiful retreat center, beautiful grounds, the weather's quite pleasant, and there's nothing much to do except hang out and be present, sit around and walk around, and yet we see our mind go through a whole maelstrom of uh, extraordinary, extraordinary waves and struggles and difficulties. Someone might come in from the outside and go, what's the big deal? Like, why is everyone looking not so happy? (laughs) So, but as as you know, there's plenty of reasons why we get caught. And what I particularly want to speak to tonight is this aspect of how we create suffering by being in contention with reality, being in contention with what's true, being in opposition in some way with what is whether that's through resistance or through grasping. One of the teachings of the Buddha that I like very much is the teaching he gave about the two dots. And what he said in that teaching was that we often, um, the the first dot that we often experience uh, is is something like, um, say, we experience some knee pain, some backache, you know, some of the, some of the, just the body aches and pains that we get when we're sitting. That's the first dot of suffering, having a body, having physical pain. The second dot is, is the dot that we add to that experience. 
we judge our body. Oh, why am I feeling suffering? Why am I feeling pain? I thought I worked out enough and did all this yoga and I'm, you know, if only I was a better person, I wouldn't be feeling suffering. So we add, you know, we add an extra layer of suffering and that's the, the layer that we're interested in understanding. Similarly, when we get tired, I know a lot of you were talking about sleepiness today. Sleepiness is just sleepiness. It's just a, an, an energetic state that comes and goes. It's not a problem in itself. But in meditation, in the meditation retreat, oh, it's such a big deal. I'm sleepy. I hate being sleepy. I, I want to be awake. I was paid all this money to, to be awake. And here I am just falling asleep. And I'm learning to sleep. I'm learning to sleep sitting upright. What's the point? And so we add, you see how that is an extra layer of suffering? Sleepiness is just an energetic state. It's just low, fuzzy uh, dullness, lack of energy. Well, with our minds, you know, our minds constantly proliferate and think and imagine and create and drift and wander. And that's what minds do. That's what they're designed to do. They think. And yet we add this other layer. Oh, my mind, it's so busy. You know, if only I was a better trained yogi, if only I did this, you know, I'm sure everybody else is sitting in nirvana and here I am thinking about my bank balance and <laughs> that's suffering. That's the layer that we're learning to see and let go of. And as we've been saying a lot today and yesterday, mindfulness not only helps us pay attention to what's happening, whether it's the foot touching the ground or the breath entering the body, but also how we're relating to each experience. What's the attitude? What's the orientation? And so these poisons, the grasping, the aversion, the delusion, are attitudes that we bring to experience that we need to pay attention to, that it behooves us to pay attention to. So the first poison that I want to talk about, poison's a little bit of a strong word, I have to say. That's how it's been translated um, um, you could look at it as an unwholesome tendency in the mind. Is this, this, this um, habituated response of having aversion or resistance to that which we don't like, that which we don't want, to some kind of unpleasantness in the mind, in the body, in the field of our experience. And with aversion, it, it can go both ways. It can have a flavor of fear, which is more when we experience something, like say a knee pain, and we, there's some fear and we recoil, we, we back away uh, and we kind of check out, we space out, we distance ourselves from it. Or it can be a more forward-moving energy in the form of anger or rage where we're actually sort of confronting the object with aversion and resistance and pushing against it. So we go back and forwards between recoiling or striking out, just a very kind of reptilian response. Anybody notice any of that today? Anybody notice anything that you might not have liked? And you had some, some, some stuff around that? Some movement either towards or against or checking out? So the retreat life, the meditation life is a microcosm of how you live in your life. I hate to bring the bad news, but um, it really just is a reflection of how we live. So. Uh, sometimes the question asks, well, what, what has this got to do with, you know, being at work or being with my children or how we react to each passing moment here is really just a reflection of how we are in our lives. We train ourselves how to work with difficulty uh, in this situation and it translates. 
very directly into our life. So I'm just going to name a few of the things that you may have noticed having some aversion to today, just some of the domains so you can bring that to your attention as the days go on. You may have had some um, aversion to the physical environment, to the heat. For some of you, it's too hot. For some of you, it's too cool. When we put the AC on, it's too cool. When we turn the AC off, it's too hot. And it's always interesting to notice when we're having a a reaction to something, how subjective that reaction is. Because we may be loving the heat in the morning at 7 o'clock when the sun comes over the hill, but loathing the sun at midday, and then welcoming the coolness at night that we were having aversion to in the morning. We may have aversion to our minds, to the craziness and the busyness and the wildness and the jumpiness and the the undisciplined uh, nature of our minds. Anybody had a wild mind today? Kind of all over the place? Or minds that tell you to do one thing, and then you do it, and then it says, why did you do that? Why did you have seconds when I, when I told you seconds wasn't a good idea? You know, it's good to have a sense of humor with your mind. Otherwise, it just ain't funny. Or we may have had a reaction to difficult emotions that come up. Some of you talked about very painful emotional states that begin to surface as we, as we drop into this space of silence and spaciousness. Often a lot of things begin to bubble up that we've repressed or just been too busy to feel in our lives. Emotions of sadness or grief or loss or longing or emptiness can surface that we may not want to be with, we may not want to hang out with. And so there's an aversion, there's a pushing away, there's a recoiling from that. Or the sleepiness, as I mentioned earlier. Often we have a lot of um, reactivity to what's happening in the body. We encourage you to have a body-centered awareness, and yet as we sit for long periods of time, you have to sit with some discomfort and aches. It's natural for the body to have aches and pains if if we sit still enough for long enough. And so um, we get to learn, as Harry was talking about this morning, how, how to work with difficulty, how to work with physical pain, not as an endurance test, not as a masochistic exercise, um, but to really understand how we work with adversity, how we work with difficulty, because that really serves us in our life. I had a wonderful example of um, how this comes about in teaching a mindfulness-based stress reduction class in, in the Kaiser Hospital near here some years ago. And a woman came in, it was about week four or five, which is um, about the middle of the class, where people start to really get a sense of what mindfulness is and how it can wake up that perception. And she came in really excited. And this was a chronic pain class where people had really intense, long-term, chronic, painful conditions. And I said, oh, you look really happy today. What's, what's the good news? And she said, well, I was, when I was meditating, I began to pay attention to the pain in my neck, which I've had for about 10 years. And I've always hated the pain, and I've always tensed a lot around it. And because of the instructions about relaxing and opening and softening and uh, seeing if you can l- release the tension to actually see what's actually there, she realized that the pain that she'd been contracting around for so many years was actually not that bad. 
you know, it was a flickering of uh, piercing pain, but it wasn't this monolithic experience that she'd built up as being so unbearable. And so mindfulness gave her a doorway to realizing, oh, it's actually possible to be with this. I don't have to contract my whole mind and body around it. Sometimes we're sitting on a retreat and things bother us that we wouldn't ordinarily bother us that much. Have you noticed that? You might be sitting quite contentedly, uh, meditating, and then some, somebody starts to cough or somebody starts breathing loudly next to you or fidgeting a lot or somebody comes in late. And all of a sudden this rage surfaces, like how dare they walk into the hall five minutes late? Don't they know we're trying to meditate? And this person's coughing is really too loud and that person's breathing. You know, don't they know I'm trying to be quiet? And we go on and on and you know, that person's socks are too loud and this person's sweater is too bulky and things get blown out of proportion sometimes we're on a retreat. The mind doesn't have anything else to focus on so it fixates on something and it blows it out of proportion. And we want to kill the person next to us because they have a loud breath. This phenomenon is called yogi mind. It's when things get blown out of proportion and the mind fixates unhealthily, magnifies it, and all we can see or hear is that breath or that disturbance. And of course it creates a lot of reactivity, usually intense aversion. Or violent feelings or homicidal feelings. Or, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've been there. I've been on retreats where I wanted to kill the person sitting next to me. Here we are doing loving kindness and metta and may all beings be happy. But you, please just shut up. I don't do that anymore. And that was in the past. <laughs> Long time ago. So it's good to ask the question, what is it that we're reacting to when something unpleasant is arising? When we're having this reactivity, resistance, aversion, anger, frustration, negativity, what is it actually that we're resisting? If it's, say, a sound of someone's breath or the sound of the AC making a noise outside. What we generally don't notice is this quality of what in the teachings are called Vedana. Vedana is a feeling tone. Every experience that we have has a feeling tone of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or somewhat in between, somewhat neutral. If something is, if we experience something as unpleasant, like say um, a loud sound or knee pain or a painful emotion, it has an unpleasant feeling tone that we feel in the body that registers. That's what we're having the reaction to. We don't, we don't like having that unpleasant feeling continually stimulated. So notice the next time you're in some resistance or aversion to something, see if you can sense into a quality of unpleasantness that, that, cor- that correlates to that experience. Because it's the unpleasant feeling that's causing the, re- the reactivity. When we're mindful and say, and the knee pain is present or the backache, and we can just sense into it and sense the unpleasant quality, we, or we immediately um, circumvent that, that habit of reacting away from it. 
and the the power of 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 this this practice is when we begin to see when we begin to have examples where something arises like a like a like some sounds or some physical pain that we have uh, initial resistance to when we uh, catch the unpleasantness when we catch the aversion can be with it and let it go soften into it so it passes away by itself we see that we can actually find peace without this the source of the what we think of the sources of the unpleasantness leaving we can we can get a sense of how to find peace even in the middle of uh, difficult experience so i'll give a little example um, this is a, a example of when i was in india i was i was on a meditation retreat in bodhgaya 20 days and uh, i was at the beginning of the retreat and um, as this often happens in um, uh, this time of year it's a very busy time for pilgrims and so a lot of people come and set up shops and bazaars and and this particular year a travel agency set up shop outside uh, outside the gates of the monastery and we're broadcasting uh, cheap bus tickets all around India um, which was lovely and um, it was on a tape recorded loop that kept going every couple of minutes <laughs> and um, so we noticed a little bit of aversion, 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 particularly because the tape loop started with this thing where it said, hello, 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 getting people's attention. And then it listed off some cities, Bombay, Calcutta, Delhi, then as most of it was in Hindi. And then it would rewind and then start again. Hello, 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 <laughs> Bombay, Delhi, Darjeeling. Hello, 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 hello. Oh. <laughs> Yes, me, I, I want something. So, um, lots of aversion, homicidal feelings. <laughs> I'm not sure if there's a form of nonviolent Buddhist destruction, but there was that, that was definitely in there of how to dismantle the speaker system without anybody knowing or getting hurt. And we'd pray for the Indian electricity system to have these moments of power cuts so we could just rest in silence. Anyhow, so cut a long story short, um, it went on for several days and actually went on for most of the retreat. And, um, you know, what, in the beginning, what caused incredible aversion in these concrete rooms with no soundproofing, no, just very loud. And after days went by, slowly the mind began to let go. It's like, oh, it's sound, it's sound, it's, it's unpleasant, it's unpleasant, it's unpleasant. And in, after a while, it just became background noise, like all, with all the other noise, all the other cacophony that was going on. And it was what the, the point of the teaching for me in that was that it, I saw that my mind could be at peace without the source of the original irritation having to leave. And that's one of the, the teachings that we get from this practice is we think, oh, if, only this, if we can only get rid of this and stop that and stop them from coming in late and fix the heating and change the food and get coffee, you know, then, then, you know, then I'll be in nirvana. So the, the Buddha's third noble truth, the cessation of suffering arises when we can let go, when we allow these forces of grasping or aversion to pass into cessation, when we don't pick them up and run with them with reactivity, just notice them, see them, and they pass away. We don't have to do anything about them. So in this way, whatever you're turning your attention to, whether it's difficult 
uh, or challenging, it can be a vehicle to discovering freedom in this moment. There's a lovely quote from Ajahn Chah who says, it's the sounds that, it's not we that disturb the sound, but the sound disturb. No, it's not we that disturb. It's not the sound that... (laughs) Okay, next. It's not the sound that disturbs us, but we that disturb the sound. Our reactivity is what creates the disturbance, not the sound itself. And as much as we dislike pain, unpleasantness, difficult times, struggle, uh, suffering, as you know, in the times when you look back over your life, the times that you've grown the most, you've understood the most, you've really expanded your capacity, expanded your heart, are usually in those times that we've really struggled. And so not that we invite suffering, but to, to remember how much growth and learning comes from dealing with adversity. Rilke, talking about pain, puts it this way. He says, How dear you will be to me then, you nights of anguish. Why didn't I kneel more deeply to accept you, inconsolable sisters? And surrendering, lose myself in your loosened hair. How we squander our hours of pain, how we gaze beyond them into a bitter endurance to see if they have an end, though they are really seasons of us, our winter-enduring foliage. So when aversion arises, when resistance arises, when anger, when fury, when irritation arises, see if you can recognize it. It's helpful to name it. Oh, anger. Oh, this is frustration. Oh, irritation is like this. Resistance is like this. And then notice how your body is in that experience. When we're feeling aversion, there's usually some physical contraction. If we feel that, we feel the added unpleasantness of how of that recoiling to something. To be caught in a state of aversion is, is to be caught in a state of suffering. So recognize the suffering nature of it. Recognize how it filters our perception. When we're caught in aversion, we, don't, we stop see clearly. We stop seeing clearly. We're seeing through the lens of reactivity. Just the last piece about aversion, one of the places that we most get caught in aversion is towards ourselves. We turn that lens of reactivity, of judgment, of rejection, of um, pushing away of the experience of ourselves. You know, whether it's because we have high standards, we have old messages from the past about not being good enough or not, not being able to do anything right. So notice that, notice how, notice the, the, the particular suffering that comes from the way we talk to ourselves harshly or, you know, relate to ourselves with judgment, with criticism. And the meta practice that we're teaching um, is, one of the one, is one of the most powerful antidotes to that self-hatred, to that self-rejection. And one day we will come to live into this phrase by Walt Whitman, where he says, and as to me, I know of nothing else but miracles. And as to me, I know of nothing else but miracles. So the second uh, unwholesome tendency of mind is the force of attachment, the force of grasping. It's it's another way that, uh, it's another one of those attitudes that we're wanting you to pay attention to, to see how it distorts your perception to see how it causes suffering. 
It's the experience of wanting something other than what's happening. So again, we're resisting what's here and wanting something else, wanting something better, something different, a better meditation, a better body, a better dinner, a better, you name it, we'll have some desire for it at some point in time. It's the way we tighten up when something isn't quite right, when something isn't quite how we would like it to be. It's the feeling that happiness isn't available here, but it, it's somewhere else, in some other experience, it's somewhere in the future. If I only do something a little differently, then I'll be happy. And it's very closely, it's the flip side of aversion. So often we feel aversion or resistance and, and almost in the simultaneous moment, we have a desire for something else. We feel that we sit down and our minds all over the place and we're just craving peace or stillness or a cup of tea or a movie or ice cream or chocolate or whatever is your, your flavor of distraction. One of the ways we can notice the, the wanting mind the, when, when we're in that, that, that stream of, of grasping is it, it comes with a belief system and with a, with a, with a, with a thought constructs. So one of the ways I notice my own um, habit of grasping is I get into the if only mind. If only, if only, if only my legs would stop aching. If only my mind would shut up. If only it was cooler in here. If only they served coffee at breakfast. If only I'd brought my favorite pillow and my iPod and I could play it in my room and they wouldn't know. (laughs) If only I could have two consecutive moments of mindfulness or feel two breaths. If only I could sit like all the other Buddhas in here. So, and that goes on, you know, we go around, we walk and we sit and we eat and we do our job and the, the mantra is playing, you know. Oh, and, and, and you know, when you notice, you know, people talk a lot about being consumed in thought, lost in thought. What are we often lost in? We're lost in fantasy. We're lost in dream time. We're lost in planning, planning our life as if our life isn't happening. We're planning, you know, what we're going to do after the sit. <laughs> I'm going to walk. We're planning where we're going to go to walk. <laughs> Wondering if it's going to be available or free or who's going to be there. You know, we're, we're just this this never-ending hope of happiness in the next moment. Desires are endless, as you may have noticed. Desires don't necessarily cause suffering. The attachment to, our, to, the, to the desire is really the seed of suffering, the source of suffering. When we get fixated on demanding reality be a certain way, when we demand our partners or our colleagues or our body or ourselves to be a certain way, that's when we get caught in suffering, when we're fixating and demanding something happen. As the third Zen patriarch said in beautiful text, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. The great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. So we all have preferences. Preferences are fine. But what's our relationship to it? What's the relationship to the preference? 
and of course that that habit of grasping comes into our practice. We all have a certain idea of how we want it to be, and so we get into subtle manipulations and fixing and controlling and trying to create a certain experience. So what often happens is we have a moment or some moments of peace or calm or bliss or tranquility, and then the thought arises, oh, that's it, finally, you know, they promised it somewhere. They said it would happen. And then, of course, as soon as we latch onto it, what happens? Disappears, like as quick as the breeze. And then we spend the rest of the day trying to get back there, just sitting in the right posture, just breathing. How was I breathing? You know, what was I thinking about? Trying to recreate pleasure. One of my teachers said, the, one of our fundamental delusions is we, we spend our time chasing pleasure and not peace. Pleasure is temporary, whereas peace is more uh, substantial, more lasting. So again, to pay attention to what it is that we're grasping after, just as in aversion we're resisting the unpleasant experience, the unpleasant feeling tone with grasping when we're caught in longing for something, seeking something, whether it's a sexual fantasy, a longing for a, a, a meditative bliss. We, um, the longing is fueled by this um, attachment to pleasure, to pleasant feeling, what's called pleasant feeling tone. It's just the flip side of neg- the unpleasant feeling tone. We're also addicted to sustaining and maintaining pleasant feeling tone. That's what, when we, when we get the ice cream, when we get the dessert, when we get the, you know, the sunshine on our face, when we get to lie down in bed at night, pay attention to the feeling tone, because that's really what we're actually seeking, that sense of relaxation, ease that comes from that pleasantness. So again, I'll give an example of uh, something that happened to me on retreat many years ago, <laughs> um, where I was uh, having a very difficult retreat. It was a, like a, I forget how long, it was a long retreat for me, like three weeks. And um, I was pretty new to meditation. It was in Wales, and it was cold and um, uncomfortable, and I wasn't experience, experiencing many moments of pleasure. And I was craving some uh, chocolate, which I hadn't brought, and very unwisely. And that's a secret teaching. People bring chocolate to retreats. Um, so I, um, I had that, that, that the, the, the desire was so strong, I decided to, to leg it down to the, um, the local store, which was about three miles away, down in the village um, in the middle of nowhere, through this howling, gray, windy, stormy Welsh night in, in hope of sweetness and pleasure. And my roommate was sick, so I thought, well, he's, got, he's sick, so I'll go get him some Lemsip, you know, some, you know, some cold remedy stuff, and then I'll get the chocolate, you know. So I leg it all, all the way down to the store and my rain gear and get to the store. It's still open. I'm very excited, and I start loading up with chocolate and candy, and, and I get so captivated by all the excitement that I forget the cold medicine. And I <laughs> walk three miles back in the rain, get into the room. It's like now dark. And I see my poor roommate, you know, with his thermometer in his mouth and sick, and I'd forgotten the, the, cold, the cold medicine. 
So um, that's how the force of desire it creates tunnel vision. We get very fixated when we're, when we're caught up in that. It's you know they say lust blinds, blinds us. You know the same as very strong desire blinds. We get blinkered. So um, my my roommate did survive. I'll have you know, and uh, drew me a very funny picture of me in the store, with huge pockets full of chocolate and candy. <laughs> And me asking the, the counter, the person behind the counter, I'll have one more of those, chocolate, and one more of those, and then the whole rest of the store is full of cold <laughs> remedies. <laughs> so anyhow, practice is very humbling. Have you noticed that? It's very, very humbling to, to sit on a silent meditation retreat, to face yourself without distraction, and see that the mind has no shame. The mind has no limits to what it wants, what it will do, what it will get up to. Gendon Rinpoche, in a beautiful uh, Vajra song, says, Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. So the delusion part of grasping is we believe that we can get happiness from some experience that it's not already innate to who we are. And no wonder we, we have that, because we live in this culture that so perpetuates this myth that if you buy this, get this, have this, live in this, drive this, wear this, eat this, drink this, you'll be happy, happier. You know, we live in this culture of homo shoppians. So here's an ad. Um, it's a meditation ad. Um, and it's a meditation. There's a little orange dot that you can all focus on. It's, and it's taken from a Buddhist meditation called a kasina, which is a, where you concentrate on a, on a small object of color for concentration. And it says, try this simple form of meditation. Focus on this dot. Stare into it for a few moments. See it as a door, an opening, a vessel into which your mind is flowing. Once inside, your heartbeat begins to slow. You feel peaceful and calm, serene. You'll feel the same opening the door of an E-class Mercedes. <laughs> so forget the meditation, just go buy the car and you'll be happy. So, you know, as with anything that we say up here, it's really useful to remember not to use this as a judgment, as to use it to judge yourselves. Oh, now I'm in aversion, now I'm in grasping, now I'm such a bad Buddhist, you know, I'm such a bad meditator. No, it's just to recognize, oh, when this is happening, this is a source of suffering, and paying attention to that. The Buddha once said, whoever in the world overcomes desire so hard to transcend will find that suffering falls away like drops of water falling from a flower. And Tejaniya, a wonderful uh, Burmese monk, um, in a piece of uh, writing that I read recently, he said, when there is attachment or aversion in the mind, always make that your primary object of meditation. So whatever you're paying attention to, breath, body, sounds, feelings, thoughts, when, the, when these, the tendencies arise, turn your attention towards them. Feel them. Feel what it's like when desire is present, just like when aversion is present. What's the body doing when grasping or attachment is, is there? 
Is it pleasant? Is it open? Is it spacious? Or is, it, is there clutching in the belly? Is the throat tight? Is there a sense of constriction? No matter how pleasurable the object, there's usually some tightness when we're grasping. Because peace and grasping can't coexist in the same moment. And our practice is not to reject things, not to reject the world, not to reject the things that we're grasping onto, but to let go of the grasping. As Tilopa once said to Naropa, it's not the outer objects that bind you, but your inner attachment to them. So you don't have to reject the outer objects, just pay attention to your relationship. So lastly, um, the, uh, the quality of delusion the last of the three poisons that the Buddha said are the fundamental cause of us being in this, what's called the wheel of samsara, where we go round and round, creating suffering for ourselves. Delusion, ignorance. So some would say ignorance is bliss. And sometimes we go, we have um, this idea that not knowing and not, you know, if we don't pay attention fully and we don't really let in what's happening, Some, somehow we can just cruise along in this kind of somewhat numb, kind of floating kind of world and everything will be okay. Good luck. I've noticed when I do that, reality has a tendency to bite when I tend to sort of put things into a cupboard that I hope to look at in a few years. Uh, things tend to have a habit of resurfacing. So, so much of our practice is to, um, is to really work against and understand this quality, to understand how it is that we delude ourselves, how it is we misperceive reality, how, how it is we don't see what's true. And yet, at the same time, we're plagued with this, 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 this uh, delusion is so deep that sometimes the very lens in which we're looking through is obscured, so we don't even see clearly at the fact that we're not seeing clearly. So it's good to reflect, to see, or to think about, or to sense into the ways that you might not be seeing the truth. And sometimes for some people this is hard to, to do, hard to look at, hard to, to um, because in this culture, such a high value placed on knowing, on knowledge, on being right, on knowing what we're doing, knowing who we are. And so sometimes we have to empty ourselves. There's a wonderful Zen story about a, a, a monk who goes in search of a great famous teacher for some teachings. And first they sit down and the monk invites, the, the, the master, Zen master invites him in for tea and begins pouring him some tea and instead of um, stopping when the tea's uh, reaching the top of the cup, he keeps pouring, keeps pouring, and suddenly the tea's falling all over the saucer and the tray and then all over the floor, and the monks go, no, 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 stop, 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 it's full, it's full. And, um, and the master explains, you know, the reason he's doing that is, you know, the metaphor is his mind, the monk's mind, is like that teacup. It's so full, he can't actually let any teaching in. First, we have to empty ourselves. So delusion is any way that we're not seeing clearly, any way we're not perceiving. When I grew up in England, first I was raised in the South, um, so much of our misperception, delusion, comes from our conditioning. And so for me, 
uh, having been raised in the South for the first six years of my life, I was told that Northerners were kind of stupid. And then I moved to the North, and I was told the Southerners, was, Southerners were really arrogant. And that was very confusing. Like, well, who's right? You know, we once lived in a world where people thought the world was flat. And that wasn't that long ago. Try looking at somebody without um, the, the, the baggage of your conditioning and biases and preferences and views distorting what you see. It's very hard for us to see a person without and see them really clearly for who they are without adding all of our ideas and views and stories and feelings and beliefs about them. So all of what I've talked about tonight, the way desire blinds us, the way we believe the reactive mind we're in aversion, they're forms of delusion. Thinking happiness lies outside of ourselves is delusion. Not knowing what we're feeling, not knowing what's going on is a form of delusion. You may, you may have met somebody who's really angry who doesn't think they're an angry person. And sometimes it's shocking to realize that they don't actually see how angry they are. You know, and that could be the same for us. The, different, the ways that we feel or act that we just don't see. And sometimes we need the reflection of others to get more clear. Delusion can be believing in the reality of good and bad experiences. We get so caught up in believing that what's happening is so true, and yet when we give an experience the perspective of time and space, what may have been really painful and difficult and what we labeled bad in the moment actually turned out to be a liberating experience. I know when I went through a dark night of the soul, which for some reason always lasts longer than one night, mine lasted about 365 nights, um, it was a very painful experience. And and at the time, I probably would have labeled it like a a really hard, bad experience. And yet, looking back on it, it was the most healing, transformative experience of my life. Delusion is sometimes manifest in believing our perspective as true. We don't see our own subjectivity. We don't see that every perception we have is just a point of view, is looking at something from a certain lens. Another way delusion manifests is the way we believe our stories. How many of you buy into your own press relief, press release? You know, we, we're constantly telling stories in our heads all the time about ourselves, about our friends, about each other here. And the, the retreat's a wonderful place to see that. You don't know anything about anybody here. And you've probably got stories about everybody here. <laughs> and lots of them. And then when you break silence and you find out they're actually from Russia and they're uh, nuclear scientists and not um, a gardener as you thought they were, you know, you s- the whole story world crumbles. We get lost in the, what, what's called papancha, the proliferation of mind based on certain experiences. So notice when you're running a story, running a view, to ask the question, is this true? Or is this just a story? Is this something I've made up? Probably the biggest source of delusion is the stories we have about ourselves. In some ways, even though we hang out with ourselves and spend all of our time thinking about ourselves and taking care of ourselves, 
we often see ourselves the least clearly. We often see ourselves through the lens of what, how other people saw us growing up, the lens of our conditioning. Through these ideas that we think we're separate. And the ego has a very strong view that we're this separate, individual, independent, not connected to anything. That we're this little blob that walks around on the earth and somehow is unaffected by any of it. One of the things I love to reflect when I'm in the mountains or when I, I'm leading wilderness retreats and I say to people, um, you know, we have this idea that we're separate and disconnected and yet after you've been living on this mountain for a, a week and you're drinking of the stream of the mountain and since our body is 70% water, by the time you leave the mountain, you are 70% that mountain stream. How is it that we're not connected? How is it that you think you're still separate? John Muir once said, when we try to pick anything out by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. Mm -hmm. So when your mind is, is, is um, playing its stories, playing its songs, playing its tapes, see if you can just see that it's just a thought. As somebody said the other night, a thought of your mother is not your mother. It's just a thought. The thought about yourself and the thought about your neighbor and the thought about everything else that you think about is just a thought. Not to say there's not validity in some of our thought streams, but to see how much these great webs of story that aren't necessarily grounded in reality. So I want to wrap up and um, just want to um, you know, I think how he's going to talk more about this tomorrow night, but to really um, particularly this force of delusion, which is, is, is in some ways one of the more subtle things to pay attention to because the very um, you know, there's this phrase that I love from Zen Master Bankai who said, "Don't side with yourself." We so often side with ourselves. We so often take our own point of view. We can't see the delusion, the misperception, the inaccuracy in which we're perceiving. But to always hold a, a kind of a curious, inquisitive lens. So when the stories and the tapes are playing about yourself, the old tapes, I'm not good enough, I'm worthless, I'll never get anywhere, I'll never wake up, these teachings are too hard for me, to ask, just ask the question, is this true? Is this view true? Is this belief true? Is this self-story that I'm playing, is it true? I love the, uh, the phrase that Suzuki Roshi once said. He said, you're completely perfect just as you are. You're completely perfect just as you are, and we could all do with a little improvement. But at first he said, you're completely perfect just as you are. See how that feels when you let that in, rather than, well, you know, I'm not, you know I've got this to work on, that to work on. You know, we're not here to work on our personalities. We're here to see what's true, to see our true nature. 
to see that everything is fine just as it is, and to see these habits, these obscurations, these patterns, are really what creates suffering. But our fundamental, fundamental nature is actually always at home, is always at peaceful. The awareness that we abide in, this, this present, wakeful clarity, is unmoved by this whole display that comes and goes in our minds, and our bodies, in the world around us. We're already at peace, we're already at ease. Our nature is indefinable, boundless, limitless. So our practice is to know that, to rest in that, to pay attention to what obscures that. And over time, the perseverance, the obscurations begin to soften, begin to fade, become more porous. We begin to see them, we begin to be less caught by them, and we begin to release them with more ease. And we begin to reside more, more strongly, more easefully in our nature, in our true nature. So let's just sit for a few moments. Sagadatta once wrote, once said, the personal self by its very nature is constantly pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. The ending of this pattern is the ending of the self. The ending of the self with its desires and fears enables you to return to your real nature, the the source of all happiness and peace. This talk was given by Mark Coleman at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on August 23, 2007. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.